So I've been thinking a lot about my podcast, which if you're looking for red flags, that's a red flag when a man tells you that he's been thinking very hard about his own podcast. The, um, you know, we're approaching uh, a year here. The, um, Jesus, this might actually be a year. Holy shit. Um, closing in on 52 episodes and I'm sort of starting to wonder, like, do I keep it going? Um, the, I mean, I can't quit just now because uh my friend matt buckner at sennheiser just sent me a couple of more super fancy mics uh and i'm super grateful for that so i gotta gotta uh get a little of my spit on both of those mics um before i wrap it up the but you know i was wondering i started this podcast because i was losing my mind i feel like i'm better uh it hasn't caught fire do i do I keep going that, you know, if you make art in the woods and nobody hears it, uh, does it matter? Is it art? Um, and then listening back to this podcast, uh, that I did with my old friend, Ryan McKee, I'm like, ah, fuck it. I got to keep going because these are meaningful to me. And I feel like sort of starting to figure out uh, what this is about or where it's going. I mean, a lot of this is about uh, sort of like touchy-feely male issues of the um, what it is to be a man and also have a conscience, um, what it is to be a man in your 40s and sort of reckon with the havoc that you wreaked uh, when you were younger. And uh, male intimacy and the importance of, you know, your sort of closest male friendships. Um, when I was on tour with Jake, we had a long protracted conversation about sex and neither one of us made any jokes and it was real weird, uh, because dudes don't talk about their feelings or, um, uh, specifically feelings about sex and intimacy, unless it's just in the fucking, I'm sorry, in the frattiest locker roomiest, uh, way possible. Uh, but Jake and I were able to have a sort of like a long nuanced, uh, conversation, uh, with featuring both talking and listening. Uh, it was incredibly helpful to me. Um, I've known Ryan for 19 years now. Uh, we, he was in Phoenix and we hung out, um, when did we record this? November? October? I'm not sure. It all blurs together. Um, but Ryan, uh, Ryan's been a successful writer and comedian, and he was one of the first people I met in Phoenix. Um, I, I remember meeting him and Ron Babcock and thinking like how supportive and uh, positive the Phoenix comedy scene is, and, and boy, <laughs> you fucking eat those words. Uh, but he he's he's established a successful life as a creative. And so we sort of started talking, uh, he's worked, uh, worked as a writer on the late, late show for James Corden. He worked at MTV and MTV two. Um, he has sort of an admirable resume. Um, so we started out talking about, um, what it means to work as a creative, what it means to, to, uh, to turn your passion into work, what, what it is to, to be a success at it. Um, and then got into a, in your forties, all roads lead to childhood trauma and your, your weakness and your addictions. And we ended up having a, a nuanced conversation about, uh, you know, dealing with the wreck, not just the wreckage that we inflicted, uh, when we were drinking, but also, um, 
the the harm that was done to us when we were kids and the you know those formative experiences um i'm also grateful to ryan uh for for us having a strong enough friendship that I'm able to pester him at sort of a delicate point in his life. Ryan is quitting drinking and uh, we were able to have sort of a very uh, no holds barred conversation about why he needs to stop drinking, what's been going on, how he's gotten to this point, um, you know, how he's recognized that it's the end of the road. And it's a, it's a real raw place to be because I've been there and looking in the future is just sort of terrifying, but I'm really proud of this conversation. Uh, I feel like, I feel like we're getting at something here that will be helpful to people. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, welcome back. I hope you're still listening. If you're not listening, you're not hearing me lecture you for not listening. So, um, (laughs) Enjoy this conversation with my old friend, Ryan McKee. Mr. Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. Ryan McKee, welcome to the Actors Studio. (laughs) Thank you. This is not at all what I expected the Actors Studio to look like. But uh, I suppose if What's-His-Name fell on hard times... uh, I can't remember what the guy's name was. <laughs> Me either. The this is like the uh, the guitar hoarders studio. Yeah, yeah. The um, how are you, buddy? How uh, how is it being back in uh, in Phoenix in your old stomping grounds? It's weird. You took me to a party last night, and I didn't know anybody there, but it was all the same people. If you know what I mean. It's I I remember not in a bad way. It's yeah. just in a surreal way. Yeah, yeah. The I remember um, Ontario in Canada was the first place we lived when I was a kid. And I remember going back there, like leaving when I was eight and then going back when I was like 15 or something. And go, I remember going to the playground and everything looked um, smaller, but still had like so much power over me because of like the memory that was yeah. attached to it. And uh, whenever I go back somewhere, there's always like a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, the party we were at last night was in this backyard in downtown Phoenix, and you could look out and see the freeway, and I've been in so many parties, situations like that, and uh, but it's been like a decade, probably. It's it's also, it's like the, whenever I go back to New York, that more than any other city, I feel like New York is a place that's con- like constantly rewriting itself, so it's... Um, oh, that bar closed down. This is the new spot. This is the new spot that's um, that's about to open. This is the spot that opened a while ago and that people no longer go to. Um, and uh, and then there's like sort of this cast of characters of like you know the the dude who looks like a crust punk, but everybody knows that he's yeah. like you know his father's a fucking oil exec <laughs> or whatever. The and I, I feel like there were definitely Phoenix archetypes on display last night. Yeah, yeah, good people. Just, uh, you know, definitely, I don't know. It made me a little uh, nostalgic for it, but also like, oh, I guess I'm not really missing much. Yeah, yeah. The How long ago was it that you left Phoenix? Long time. I first moved away from Phoenix in 2005. Yeah. 
Moved to LA for three years. Moved to New York for close to eight years. Back to LA for a little over five years. And then now I'm in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. The big time, baby. Yeah. The Does it feel... Moving to Phoenix, like, whatever, four years ago at this point in my life and at this point in my career feels a little bit like victory and a little bit like defeat. The, like, sort of like the, sort of like I'm retiring. Um, Has Wilmington felt like that for you? Yeah. It feels like that in, it's this huge, it feels like a huge weight has been lifted off me after, like, moving out of L.A. and, like, being in Uh that kind of. Um, is constantly trying to get more opportunities, get better opportunities, try to stay ahead and keep the opportunities I had working for Late Late Show with James Corden. And it was like an amazing, um, it was an amazing opportunity. But while you're in it, you don't totally, you're just trying to tread water. Or at least I was just trying to tread water the entire yeah. time. So I wasn't really enjoying it that much. I was just trying to... <laughs> it's the imposter syndrome, right? Like you're just trying to not let everybody know you're not you're not actually supposed to be there, and uh, like trying to hide it the whole time. And so uh, it's weird. It, it, getting a little distance from it now, I enjoy it looking back, and I love still doing stand up. But there's like no big pressure now for it, so it's just more fun. I. I miss so much the the sensation that like, oh, maybe something's going to happen tonight. Maybe there will be the but also it gets to be like uh, like Red Bull or something where the first time you get that stimulant, you're like, oh, man, this is great. I'm going to drink Red Bull all the time. And then if you drink Red Bull all the time, you're just like cracked out and the there's no longer that thrill that like something, you know, um, Maybe something good's about to happen, and instead it turns into something bad's about to happen. Somebody will well, take my place. But here's the it's 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 not even real. Like the fact that something going out in LA and you can do one show and the right person happens to be in the audience and it goes perfectly and your whole life changes, like that's doesn't happen like that anymore. Yeah. Like people don't one thing doesn't like make somebody anymore. And it like Nowadays, you have to have like an amazing Instagram and an amazing stand up set and like know this person and have like this thing going on. Like, there, it's people aren't, you know, people are wary of going all in on somebody anymore. And there's not like the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson that like you would do once and then it would change your life, right? Yeah. Like, there's just not that like, so I feel like, yeah, when I lived in LA and when I was young, like I always felt like my life could change tonight and it never happened. And it also never happened for anybody else. I knew maybe one person I can point to and say, yeah, one, I can think of like this guy, Harris Whittles, who RIP, he's sadly passed. But, um, yeah, like I saw him do one set and it went brilliantly. And like, before I knew it, like he was writing on Sarah Silverman's show. And so maybe that's one person I can point to, but everybody else, that I know made it like it was just a long slog for them too. I feel like whenever I'm talking to uh, younger comics or musicians or whoever, they're you know they want to know how 
um, how I did what I did, how I got where I am, wherever I am. The and I when I like unfold the story for them, and then I feel like I have to tell them like none of this is true for how it'll work for you. Yeah, because I definitely had that the sort of like the your name gets picked and right. then your life changes forever. But I, but I totally agree that it's, um, it's more that you just, the, over a period of, uh, minutes, days, hours, years, you, the, eventually you look back and you're like, Oh, Oh yeah. I, I, I guess I did it. I was doing it the whole time. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I didn't appreciate didn't it. didn't appreciate it or, but that's the thing. Like, I feel like if you are a person that sits there and like truly tries to appreciate it, you might not work as hard and it might not work out for you. So there is this kind of double-edged sword of you have to be a little crazy and you're probably not going to enjoy as much as you should, but also you, you know, you might actually make it if you're a little crazy. Tell me how the James Corden thing, how it happened, how it unfolded, how it evolved. The because the we've known each other since whatever two thousand four, I think. Yeah, and right. the but like most of my friendships, the uh, we like uh, hang out uh, every week for a month, and then don't see each other for six years, and then you know the yeah. Um, and I feel like I like I didn't see you at all during that entire time that you were writing for him. Yeah, I was mostly just working all the time. So, yeah, I mean, how it unfolded was that I was in New York. I was working at MTV. I worked at MTV for like four or five years, working mostly with MTV2 shows to create original online videos with their cast to, you know, supplement the television show and they were looking for somebody to do that at James Corden. My wife and I were looking to move out of New York. She was really burnt out on it. I wanted to move back to LA. She was kind of like on the fence about LA, but was willing to go there if it meant like getting out of New York. And so just, you know, James Corden had just taken over the late, late show. Nobody knew who he was in America, but yeah, I knew they needed somebody and it just happened really fast. Like I just saw that they were looking for somebody. I applied. I happened to know one of the comedians, uh, Sean O'Connor, who was the first writers that they hired there. He put in like a good word for me. And before I knew it, I had the I had the job. And then from doing that, I worked my way into like writing for the television show as well. Uh what was that like? The I mean, because I know you from us, from me just being a fucking fall down drunk. And then, you know, you and Ron Babcock putting on like little shows at Paper Heart and stuff like yeah. that in Phoenix. The um, I mean, I, like I'm sure you'd had had, you know, some success and had seen sort of your work on um, the MTV2 stuff. Mm-hmm. The But then seeing it uh, happen on uh, the late, late show on TV, the it's gotta be kind of a fucking thrill It is a, yeah, it's totally a thrill, but like we're talking, you don't really stop to enjoy it because especially when you're working for a daily TV show, it's a, it's good and bad because if you, you know, the show's never ready. It's just time. It's like 5 PM. We have to go on. We have to tape it, you know? So it's never as good as it should be. Um, 
And so you're always constantly second guessing yourself like, oh, that that could have used another rewrite or whatever, but you just have to go. And so there's always that in the back of your head. Um, and then the first couple of times you get a sketch on, you get a joke in the monologue. It's like this huge you know, celebration for yourself. But nobody else is like worried about it because they're already thinking about tomorrow's show, you know. And so um, it's great in that something can bomb and nobody remembers it. Something can do great, but then nobody remembers it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a thrill. We were you and I were talking a little bit earlier and you were saying how, you know, when your memoir came out, you thought like your life would change in maybe this massive way when I had won an Emmy, I thought there's this like feeling like, oh, okay, I've, I've arrived, I've made it. Mm-hmm. And really nothing changes except for you can call yourself an Emmy winner. But like, it's not like I was so much more in demand. It looks good on a resume. It looks good on, you know, whatever, when people bring me up for how like, did stand up shows, but like it doesn't really mean anything. How did I not fucking introduce you to everybody at the party last night as, oh, this is my friend, Emmy Award winning Ryan McKee? I'm so glad you didn't. <laughs> it's the- very, I feel like it really, I, I feel like I always let people down. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, dude, absolutely. The, I, um, one of the things that, <laughs> It's weird where you get a certain level of success like that where you've been recognized in some formal way, but the but it's not like you're not like fucking Shaq where the you're one word where you're everywhere where everybody where you're, you become a fucking gif you know yeah. that, all that stuff the um, <laughs> because. I remember doing shows where and people would sort of like you know point their thumb at me and be like he's actually a best-selling writer, you yeah. know? And it was like an apology or like the, I'm so sorry, or the, is in this world crazy that even that jerk can be, you know, the, um, and a, my friend, uh, uh, geez, I'm fucking spacing on his name now. The Clark Dever, uh, pointed out to me that I was a micro celebrity. Yeah. Which is kind of a perfect word because it means that you've achieved achieved a level of success that will only be held against you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's appropriate. That's appropriate. Uh yeah, I feel like Yeah, it it does kind of feel like when people hear that you're have won an award or you know, they're like, okay, now prove it to me. Prove it to me that you're actually funny or you're smart. Right. Or that you're whatever. And it's not like, it's not necessarily that they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Some people will, but a lot of people, they just, maybe it's more of like the male ego. It's like, well, well let's see what you have now. Uh, you're not better than me. So you get some of that. I don't know. I, I feel like it's just like we were talking with, it's, it's not like a thing where your life just changes. You do one thing and it changes overnight in, in entertainment anymore. You have to keep doing it. <laughs> like you can't quit, you know, like you don't win one award and then Hollywood's like, oh, you've now been, you know, given the golden key to the secret room where all the jobs are. Like it just doesn't work that way. I keep thinking of the, you know, I've talked about sort of our culture as going from 
you know, sort of one marker to the next where now we move to a scrolling culture where the maybe your tweet goes viral and then the next day you, you know, you've gotten fucking you go back to your barista job. Yeah. And you, <laughs> you have four new followers yeah, for exactly. the 18,000 retweets you've gotten, you know, the or whatever. And the I keep thinking of the an amazing scene, which also now occurs to me as a horribly racist scene in um, the dude, where's my car? Okay. Uh, a seminal text, not just for this podcast, remember, but for okay. my entire life. I don't know life. if I ever saw it, but the, okay. Where they're going through the drive-through, and I think they're ordering like uh, you know Chinese food, and the, they put in their order, and the woman says, "And then," and he's like, uh, "And you know," and then I guess a diet coke, and, and she's like, "And then," and he's like, uh, "You know," and sort of adds to the order a couple of times, and then he's and she just keeps going, and yeah. then, and then, and that's what I feel it's like being a creative is yeah. that every. Um, <laughs> another seminal text that that super dumb uh tom cruise action movie the day after tomorrow mm-hmm. where it's sort of like the day keeps you know it's like you keep dying and then it starts over again yeah. and it starts over again and you just the and it at first when you start out you're like you have these sort of like naive ambitions of like i'm gonna do a thing i'm gonna write a book i'm gonna make a movie i'm gonna fucking you know write a number one album the and um it goes from sort of like I'm going to do everything to I'm going to do something to uh, I hope nobody like obliterates me or erases me from the record or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah, I'm not even like I don't even think about I used to think about what my legacy be. Like I want right, my name. Right. To, I, I don't even think about that anymore. I just like I just hope I make enough money to I don't have to like where I can just pay for myself and have like a good life. You know, like I just hope I don't have to be asking people for, you know, can you get me a job selling solar panels or something? You know what I mean? Like, I hope I just don't have to do that. That's like my main goal now. Repeat that quote from Bill Maher that you said this morning, that Bill Maher, a, a, an artist who you obviously agree with every single one of his perspectives and I all not, of his no, politics. I did not say that. <laughs> did not say that. Um, yeah, Bill Maher, I, I read this quote when I was young, when I maybe was just <laughs> starting and it always stuck with me. He said, and I I hope I'm attributing it to him correctly, he said, uh, the the race to you know making it in show business it's a race between bitterness and success and if bitterness sets in before success success never matters so and i think you know you and i agreed we've all seen these people who we would kill to have their careers but they're not happy like when you yeah. actually hang out with them and see them they're not enjoying what they're doing it's just they they are successful they don't know what else to do they don't know how to enjoy it yeah it's i've talked about this with jake flores a little bit that he's um what he's done is sort of uh he's made legit contributions to culture Mm -hmm. of like the 
I want to say writing new cliches or, mm-hmm. you know, aphorisms, metaphors, that, yeah. that, you know, that just that like he tweets them and then they sort of go out in the universe, you know, the and I think his biggest thing or the his, you know, his first thing was the, you know, when Trump was running for president and he said, you know, um, it's like it's the final season of America and the mm-hmm. writers are just going nuts. Yeah. And like and that went everywhere. He made nothing off of it. And then now it keeps popping up in different forms. Mm-hmm. So it's like probably on t-shirts places. Yeah. yeah Cross stitch. Yeah. And the uh, Wolf Blitzer read it on CNN, which is <laughs> hilarious. The, you know, so he's, he had that success of, um, making a contribution to culture that was so insightful that it disaggregated rapidly and everywhere. The, but he's been unable to monetize it. And the, and then I feel like it's the opposite with my career where I've done, I feel like I've done very little. Um, and the, and fortunately I have been able to monetize it, you know, where I was with, you know, where I was with Amazon, the, yeah, I was able to clean up when, when my ship came in the, but that's, I feel like that's part of the game too, is knowing that, um, you'll never get, you know, You'll never get paid for your greatest hits, the, mm-hmm. but maybe you'll get paid for the stuff that comes after or the stuff that comes in between or the. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. And I don't think you necessarily. I mean, I don't know. I guess your probably most celebrated book is the long run. Do you think that's the best thing you ever wrote, though? I, I don't even I mean, I have no idea what's even in there anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it was such a long time ago. And I wrote that book in uh, in, in sort of kind of an emotionally naive state and and sort of in a panic too. the uh, and when I go back and look at it, you know, if, oh, God, if I go back and look at it again, the I'm sure there'll be all kinds of things that I find where I'm like, ooh, the yeah, you know, stuff that doesn't hold up or. Stuff that I regret saying or that doesn't feel true to me anymore. But, but I mean, I guess as artists, too, that we have to, and that's true for every, um, whatever field you work in, you know, the, I don't know that, you know, Tom Petty at the end of his life that like free fallen spoke to him anymore. That's the thing. You know? Like a lot, of, I think it's rare that a person who is a creator agrees that with whatever their most celebrated thing is, that it's actually their best thing. And so in my, you know, my world, like I won, you know, I created this uh, short form series with James Corden and it was kind of like, at the peak when everybody was trying to figure out like what short form series could be with like big stars and, and it got nominated for the best short form, uh, you know, uh, Emmy and it ended up winning just through a confluence of like luck and, you know, James's popularity at the time and like kind of the, the newness of the, maybe of it the was field. also good. Yeah. And it's <laughs> maybe that's also the thing. good. I think it's good and I'm proud of it, but I don't think it's, anywhere near as good as it should be or could be or is i don't think it's anywhere near the best thing i've written uh-huh. you know and like i feel like a lot of my favorite things that i've written are still just on my computer and never got made for whatever reason you know but maybe like that's the thing it's like when you know i think someone said this recently like when you create a movie you actually create three different movies you write it that's the first movie you shoot it, that's the second movie. And then 
you actually have to edit it together and put uh-huh. it out there. That's the third movie that everybody sees. But there's really three different movies there because it changes so much in that process. And I feel like the stuff that I've written that never got produced because I never saw it, like it didn't let me down, you know, because it never got produced. So I probably still hold that stuff as some of my favorite. Yeah, you still have it sort of in its its pristine form. The that's one of the things that I've learned to do over the years recording music is knowing now when you go into the studio that the record you hear in your head is never the one that's going to come out of the studio. And it's the you same have to way be, with anything. Yeah, you have to be like. okay with um, uh, making a record you like and, and and not the record that you was set out to make. You know, yeah. the um, so, uh. I'm going to do the thing to you that a lot of my friends do to me that fucking drives me nuts where they're like, oh, yeah, we're friends. The I haven't read your book. I haven't listened to any of your records. I haven't listened to your podcast. I haven't done any of the. I haven't watched any of your shit on Corden. That's the, fine. Um, tell me what it was. Tell me about the short form thing that you did that won the Emmy. And also tell me about the the end there, getting burnout. Sure. Um, um, so the it was called it's uh, James Corden's Next James Corden. And okay. it, it was like a mock reality show where James decides he wants to pick his successor for the Late Late Show. But the gag is that he's going to be there for a long time. So all everybody's auditioning are kids. So it's <laughs> like a reality. It's like a reality competition show for children. And it's like. James and Haley Joel Osment and uh, Sabrina Carpenter, who's like a young singer, songwriter slash actress. Um, they're like the judges. And um, yeah, it's just a six part series where, you know, he ends up, you know, it's a mock competition. And then we get to the two finalists and then a kid wins at the end. And uh, it's all scripted. It's all just silly. Um and it just, I don't know, it was lucky enough to hit at the right time. That was in 2018. And then, um, and uh, when we shut that 2017, I think it won in 20, I can't remember. Anyway, 2018, 2017, 2018. And then 2019, I kind of, you know, we were speaking of like, I think your life's going to change. I thought a lot more opportunity was going to come my way. I thought a lot more I would be kind of doing a lot more with James and the Late Late Show. And it wasn't nothing more was really coming of it. And, um, you know, they said, you know, the people, the people in charge at uh, CBS in very in subtextual ways and very forward ways said, listen, you're a white guy. It's, you're a straight white guy in your 30s at the time. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's not really what we're looking for right now. Yeah. And I got it. Like, and I totally agree that writers' rooms and, and producers and it should be more diverse absolutely i think it's a better product when it's more diverse because you get different perspectives when you get all a bunch of white guys up there they're all making the same stuff they're all making the same decisions so i got it but it also like that's what i got to work with i can't change it yeah so um when i became clear like my opportunities weren't really going to change that much at cordon um and they were producing james's production company was producing another show based off of a 
British panel show that in in England it's called a League of Their Own. It's like a comedy sports panel show, and they were remaking it for a CBS audience. Uh, they renamed it Game On because it couldn't be called a League of Their Own because Amazon was making a League of Their Own TV series based on the movie. Blah blah blah. Nice. Um, and so they're like, you we can have a producer role on that. It'll be kind of a foothold for you to kind of make your own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you get like more, uh, just more responsibility. You get to like kind of build a show, help build a show from the ground up. And uh, that was really exciting to me. And so we did the first, it was with Rob Gronkowski and Venus Williams and uh, hosted by Keegan-Michael Key and Bobby Lee and Ian Carmel were on it. And it was super fun. We did the first season and then the pandemic hit. And everything, television shut down and like it was kind of lost. Like the, the first season aired, but everybody kind of missed it because it was in the middle of the pandemic. And yep. um, yeah, I mean, I'm making excuses. Maybe it wasn't that good, but it just it didn't go anywhere. And that's when I decided to just get out of L.A. and the pandemic was going on and um, just started working remotely. And um, yeah, still doing that. It's one of those things where the, you know, with the the straight white bro thing, the our beliefs are really tested, you know, because the I believe in, you know, in diversity and in uh, elevating marginalized voices. And and then when you're when your job is on the chopping block, that's that's where the rubber meets the road. That's yeah. where you really have to be like, uh, well, I meant for you. For you, for you guys, but yeah. not for me. I'm one of the good guys. You yeah, know, the, I'm an ally. The, Let yeah, me be here. Yeah, the, but also, yeah, no. I mean, that's and and I'm sound like I'm making excuses, and I am. I, I, if I was talented enough, if I was like next level talent, they would find a way, right, to put me. In. I just am not. I wasn't valued enough there. Whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm talented enough. Maybe I'm not. That the, they felt like they needed me. So. um so certainly I know that like if I was better I could I would have a job and be moving up there still. But um that's just the world we also live in a world where people are having to be more cognizant of that. And so we are gonna get left out on opportunities partly because of that. But also I agree that's what like white guys have had hundreds of years. We had our chance. So yeah. and like I had like a decade of years where I could have been doing a lot more that I wasn't. Yeah. You know, before. So, like, it's my, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, like, that political correctness is ruining my life as a white man. No. Yeah. I just feel like there is a reality there, too, that, you know, um, it's it's just, it, things are harder to get jobs now. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, let's talk about where you are now. Okay. The, um, I want to start with like tap back into the conversation we had in that Mexican place when you rolled through, when we went to the idols thing and the, you told a story about hanging out with a childhood friend and he was like, remember that time when your dad like threw you against the wall and you were like, no. Yeah. So let's, yeah, it was, let's uh, start there. <laughs> um, yeah, well, oddly enough, my, uh, my wife has said for a long time, she's like, you display all like the 
textbook symptoms of somebody who was abused as a child. You sure went abused as a child? And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure. I mean, you know, my dad was kind of a dick, but I just felt like he was kind of, you know, par for the course. And the, everybody's dad was kind of a dick in the 80s, you know? Yeah, yeah. Of was, his generation. Yeah, yeah. It was just kind of that world. He was a Vietnam vet. And I just think, you know, whatever. So I just, I didn't really think about it. And then during the pandemic, when everything kind of shut down and you're, there's nothing to distract me anymore, that I started kind of having some memories of like, maybe things weren't as good as I thought. And then I was hanging out with my brother and his best friend who grew up, you know, down the street from us more or less and was always over at our house. And we were just sitting around uh, having some beers and he was just like, He's like, you know what kind of memory sticks with me? I'm like, no. He's like, remember that time like you were bothering Tyson and I? Tyson's my brother. And I was like kind of, they were trying to play a video game and I think I was messing with them. And then my dad came in and just like threw me down uh, and like sat on my chest and just started punching me in my chest and then spit on my face. And and I could smell the beer on his on his breath too. And so even as a kid, I was like, knew it wasn't like totally him but i had blocked not completely blocked that out but i had like not thought of it in decades and it haunted him like my friend you know yeah and and then my brother was like oh yeah dad used to do that to you like and he started remembering times that i didn't remember and so yeah that's kind of what i've been processing processing through therapy right now um, is it the kind of thing that you, uh, that you, you still sort of have horrible, traumatic, scary memories of that you had sort of carried with you? Or is it just the kind of thing that, um, you had incorporated that experience of going through that into who you are? I think it's the latter and it's just, you know, I Grew up and, you know, both my parents were teachers. We didn't have a lot of money, but we never wanted for anything. Like, we had a pretty good family structure as far as, like, aunts and uncles and stuff like that. And I had a decent life, but I didn't know where, like, the crazy, crippling uh, self-hatred came from, you know? Like, I just hated myself so much. And, like, I felt so low about myself. And I didn't know really where it came from. And I, I'm kind of realizing now that that's where it was. And even more so than the physical abuse for me, I think it was like the emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. And I was never as much of a man as my dad wanted. I wasn't good at, I wasn't very good at sports. And like my brother recently, he told me, he's like, remember that time my dad was like, um, my brother's four years younger than I, uh, and my dad was hitting balls to us, and we were like, uh, you know, practicing catching like grounders for baseball, mm-hmm. you know. And so my brother, who was always very hand-eye coordination, like amazing, like he got stuff really fast when it comes to sports. And so he's four years younger than me, and he's catching these like hard ground balls that my dad are hitting, and I'm missing all of them, right? Uh-huh. And I'm getting real frustrated because my younger brother, it's. 
you know, the, the is, reflex, is better than me at something. The reflexes of a writer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I'm getting frustrated, and my dad, my, and I don't remember this, but this is what my brother remembers, is him saying, like, get the fuck off the field and go play with Barbies, you faggot. And like, you suck at this. Wow. And so it's like that kind of, and there was a lot of, I have those memories. Um, and those are the thing I think fucked me up the, that I'm, I'm feeling better about it now, but like through my twenties and thirties, like I, where I didn't know it was coming from, you know? Mm-hmm. The, I don't know. It's so weird. The, you know, I mean, we've been friends for a long time through a lot of shit and it's so weird to think of where we started and the sort of iteration of the friendship that we had. And then the now to be men in our forties trying to sort out all the fucking childhood trauma and Mm -hmm. abuse that spurred us to act the way that we did. And the, that was one of the things that I heard all the time uh, growing up was that, Oh, you know, mental abuse is far worse than physical abuse. And my response was always, or God, I remember this one fucking teacher was like, um, the, it was, it was like early English literature. So like, uh, Chaucer and Beowulf and stuff like that. And he asked if it was worse to be physically tortured or mentally tortured. And everybody said mentally tortured. And I said, physically tortured. And he was like, and everybody looked at me like I was the jackass. And I was like, when's the last time you guys were physically tortured? Yeah. And I got a B minus in that class. (laughs) Fuck you, man. Um, The, but I think they were right. And I think I was wrong. The, you know, my dad never laid a hand on me. My mom hit me. Um, Mom, if you're listening, you hit me a bunch of times. Uh, Hope you feel horrible. You're a terrible parent. The, I have no ill will towards her, um, you know, because of that. Maybe I could kick her ass now. Yeah. (laughs) No, the, but my dad did just did little things to make me feel like I wasn't good enough or that he would be happier if I wasn't around. Yeah. And the, and, and that, and man, I like, I carry that with me. Yeah, no, I mean, that's totally my, like more so than like the verbal and physical abuse, just like him never, I'm like realizing he was never pleased. It didn't felt like he was pleased with anything I did. Yeah. Um, like I was never doing enough. I was never, you know, fit. Like I was never fit enough for him. I was never whatever. Uh, I was always like too chubby. He thought, and, and so I was always like kind of chasing his approval. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this today. Like I realized, like you know, I'm I'm separated from my wife now. I was with her for 15 years. But one thing about her is I felt like I was always chasing her approval. Like she's very hard gain her approval at least in that in like our relationship right and i think i looked up after doing it for 15 years and felt like at what point was i even happy in this relationship like what like i was just so i was so focused on like trying to make her happy with me that i wasn't even like stopping to ask myself if i was happy which was why like i think i started Part of, I'm not blaming it on her. It's my own thing. But why I started drinking so much was like I just rather than confront all the things that were making me unhappy in the middle of the night, I would rather just like get a nice layer <laughs> of whiskey between my brain and me, you know? 
It's kind of like you married your dad. Yeah. Yeah. And I've talked about this on stage before. I just never really gotten a good laugh. But I said, like, <laughs> you know, a lot of guys, they say a lot of men uh, marry their mom. Right. Like, that's an old cliche. Yeah. It's like, I uh, married my father. And, like, it, you know, women aren't the only ones with daddy issues. Like, you don't have the monopoly on daddy issues. Yeah. I think I said, like, you know, my wife is charismatic like my mom. So, yeah, but she's also impossible to please like my father. So I married both my parents. The So much of the people who listen to my music are fucking dudes with daddy issues. And uh, <laughs> that should be your next album. Music <laughs> for dads with du- <laughs> daddy issues. Duty, duty issues. <laughs> the, so let's talk about your wife and your drinking. Yeah. The, um, I've, I've always known you to be a guy who enjoyed a good beverage. Yeah. Enjoyed getting a little, uh, a little twisted. The, well, but yeah, I was, we used to be good drinkers together, but I, I was so, um, obs- sort of my myopically obsessed with my own drinking that I think that I never noticed that you were getting uh almost as fucked up or as fucked up as I was. The yeah, I feel like I don't know. Like I never had like the full bottom out like maybe you did, where I mean. The first year I moved to New York was like in 2008 and you were barely employed and like kind of barely holding on to a lot of your shit, you know? Yeah. And it was like, you were in a rough, I think everybody looked at you and like, Mishka's in a rough place. And I never, for better or worse, I never had like that much go wrong, you know? And so it never really stopped me. It didn't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's not like a, criticism towards you like i just i was able to point to like well i still have a good job i still have my marriage and uh yeah it's becoming less and less so (laughs) so i'm just bottoming out uh, later in life the your own private 2008 the it man it's weird to hear you say that because i've i've written about that time in my life so much and um while i was going through it i felt completely alone and then now I've written about it so much that it feels like fiction that I've sort of yeah. like mythologized that sort of like last year of my drinking. And I forget sometimes that there are people like you who were a witness yeah. to all that stuff. And the and I you know, I talked about this a little bit last night at the party, but I you know, I remember uh you and Ron driving me home from somewhere, maybe in LA, maybe we'd done a show together or something. And I was sort of in the backseat, like fading in and out of consciousness and overhearing little glimpses of a conversation, you know, between the two of you and the, you know, you're like, Oh, the, how's he doing? I'm like, Oh, not good. You know, (laughs) just hearing that and being like the, in that in between state of uh, conscious and unconscious where I, I was unable to sort of respond be like, if you know, Fuck you! I'm still alive. Like I can hear every word you're saying. The um and but also have all of it sort of fucking hit me and penetrate. You know? Yeah, I don't. I don't remember that particular instance. I do remember you being in L.A. with Beat the Devil, and there was a. It, I'm pretty. Beat the Devil came to L.A. Right? 
I feel I like you so. guys did. Yeah. yeah. The I have a memory of you being in LA and with Shilpa and I can't remember, I'm sorry, your drummer's name. Uh, Mitchell. Nice. Mitchell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And us doing like a crazy amount of blow. That sounds accurate. And drinking a lot to the point where like Ron was scared. He which he's always kind of scared. But like we were really like I remember even then thinking, and that was kind of like my peak of like pushing my limits for the Uh first time. And it was like in my, you know, mid twenties. And uh, even that was just like, Jesus Christ, this is like out of, like, we were all just so out of our minds. It was probably that same trip. I, yeah, I remember that run being, I think I had, I think I had toured out to the West coast um, solo and then Mitchell and Shilpa flew up, flew out and met me. And then we toured back and I ended up doing six weeks on one pair of jeans. And by the time that I got back, it smelled like my jeans smelled like a cat had peed in a bag of Doritos. <laughs> it was just so just crusty uh. and like, ugh. and that, that whole trip was chaos. And I, I, if memory serves, I think we sort of like broke up on the way home yeah. in, uh, in St. Louis. The, um, so it sounds like you know similarly for like a lot of other people the the this, this sort of like isolation of the pandemic is sort of what yeah really i'm not made saying my drinking spin out yeah i wasn't i'm not going to say my drinking was healthy before that but i was able to kind of manage it and there was i mean there was multiple ultimate there was multiple ultimatums with ann my Mul- wife ultimatums ultimatums like you know um because i would be you know i'd be great for like six months to a year you know like as far as like i would just have i'd be drinking too much i wasn't drinking like i wasn't just having one you know and going home but i was like not embarrassing anybody i wasn't blacking out i wasn't embarrassing annie i wasn't peeing on anything you know with uh, which had been a problem, you know, mm-hmm. and and so it would be fine for like a year, and then suddenly I would go overboard, you know, black. I I feel so bad. I've done so many shitty things to her in the past. Like, you know, I got like blackout drunk the night before her um, her uncle's funeral. Like hanging out with her family, I was blackout drunk, telling her two female cousins to kiss. Oh yeah, uh, I love this shit. Oh, I, so good. And like that didn't stop me from drinking more. Like, and then like, you know, I, I we'd gone to Northern New York to hang out with some of her friends, and we had gotten so drunk, like hanging. Like, it was a, one of those like all day drinking parties, and I got so drunk that I like peed in her friends like ski boots, and like she's just having to. And she never was blacking out, so she had to remember yeah. all of this where I like forgot it. And so, yeah, I got to a point where she was just like, you got to quit drinking. I'm like, totally. <laughs> and you're totally right. And then, like, during the pandemic, I had the best of intentions to quit drinking, and it didn't last very long. But instead of, and I would, like, quit for, like, a month. And then instead of like falling off the wagon and admitting it to her, I would just hide it. And the 
you know, I had really bad insomnia from the pandemic and I would get so frustrated that I would just, I would hide booze in the house, like just for those times when I couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was messing up my sleep more, but like in the moment, like I just didn't care, you know? And again, like I was having these weird memories. I was, I just didn't want to be alone with my head. And in the middle of the night, that's like the worst time to be alone with your head. Right. Yeah. And and like I'm beating myself up because I can't sleep. I'm beating myself up because I'm not able to stay sober for my wife. And it just got dark. But like she never caught me. Um, and I probably could have kept going like that. But it was just, you know, we had been having other problems. And I was just like, and she was really still trying to fight for the marriage. I, I kind of wanted to get separated and see how we do. Like just separated for a while. Mm-hmm. Just you know, she didn't want to. And I just kind of like, well, I got to be honest. Then like, this is what you're fighting for. Like I've been drinking and lying to you about it. Like if you want to still fight for this relationship, she's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So we're like legally separated. Now you have to be legally separated for a year in North Carolina before you can apply for divorce. And, um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm working on being sober and, if we can fix our relationship, like that's cool. If we be happier solo, um, you know, it's not hostile at all. Like we're both friendly. So that's where yeah. we're at. The listening to you talk, I was reminded of this, you know, the great quote of, uh, you know, Lord save me from temptation, but not yet. Yeah. There have been absolutely been times in my life with alcohol and with ketamine last year where I was like, I know I'm in trouble. Yeah. And I know I'm not at the end of the road yet. And then all of a sudden it's sort of like the Wiley e. Coyote and uh, the Roadrunner thing where all of a sudden there's like the road ends and you're yeah. like, oh, fuck, this is it. This is the end of the road. You know, that's it. Um was there one specific moment where you were like, oh, fuck, this is it? Or was it just an aggregation of shitty night after shitty night after shitty night? Um, I mean, there is an aggregation, but also, um, I mean, the the images that come into my head are like, I got drunk on, uh, you know, I'm only a few weeks not drinking. Uh, I got drunk on uh halloween and i was dressed as fozzy bear and (laughs) people were taking photos of me and like the costumes falling over i'm just like a drunken mess and it's like so obvious in the photos and to the point where like (laughs) this is very sweet comic uh in wilmington her name's annie witter and she was like i I didn't tag you in the photos I posted <laughs> on Instagram because I didn't want to embarrass you. Like when people are telling you that, like, oh yeah, that's so. You're you're not the you're not like the hero of the photo. You're the object, right? You're, you're no longer the subject. You're the, right. Yeah. Look at you're that just guy. Like, Let's go take that, a picture with him. God, that guy's drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the point where you're like, yeah. all right, I'm 43 now. Like, I can't be getting. I mean, that's never good to be that drunk, no matter what age you are. It's maybe passable if you're in your 20s and you're just kind of learning. But like, Jesus, 43, Ryan, like get it together. The So how long, how many days have you been sober now? It's been three weeks, a little over three weeks. Um, And are you 
quitting drinking or are you an alcoholic? <laughs> uh, well, you asked me this earlier, so I knew this question was coming, and I don't know the answer to that yet. I don't know. Um, I guess I guess I would ask you why that even matters. When the last time that I quit drinking, I was in uh, I was writing for New York Press, and I remember doing an interview with Oren Canfield, who's a noise musician. Uh, he's the son of Jack Canfield the uh chicken soup for the soul guy mm -hmm. and the he was a horrible you know junkie shooting speed balls and yeah. the he's a, plays in a band called child abuse the <laughs> wonderful guy beautiful dude great writer fantastic book and we were uh i was like interviewing him in the park and we were sort of talking about you know addiction and stuff and i told him that like uh, i'd quit drinking but you know that wasn't really sure if i was an alcoholic or not the and he looked at me and he was like Dude, you're an alcoholic. And I was like, go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. the, like, how dare you? You don't even know me, man. The We were like, I'm interviewing you. How dare you put that on mm -hmm. me? The And um, and he was right. And the I think it's a valuable question because when I was able to sort of articulate that ugly word and apply it to myself, um, I set myself free in two ways. One is that um, I set myself free of the fear of becoming an alcoholic because mm -hmm. I was like, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, we talk about like, you know, uh, work as a creative and you never really arrive. And I was like, well, I arrived as an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. The... And the other thing is the then it sort of mentally set me free to um, to realize that I could never drink again, and that I could. And so it took the responsibility away from me of that question of maybe I can drink in six months or maybe I can drink in a year. You know, the if um, if you have to take six months off of drinking, if you have to take a year off of drinking, you're a fucking alcoholic. The, and it's like, if you're able to successfully take a year off, it's not proof that you're not an alcoholic. It's proof that you are yeah. and that you're going to, and that you're so committed to it that you're going to, um, do this stunt of proving to everybody that you can, uh, take a year off and then fucking go right back to it because and this is a great spot to plug your book, <laughs> how to quit drinking called turkey the um the flip side of that though is you don't need to answer that question if you don't want to the um what uh give me the top 10 positive things that drinking brings into your life <laughs> <laughs> also great plug for your book uh on audible guys check it out um no it's not that I don't have any good reasons to keep drinking and I don't have any good arguments for why I'm not an alcoholic. I'm probably an alcoholic. I also just, I'm not sure that is that you, you, you say in your book that you are, you don't believe in alcoholics anonymous, but you support everybody who needs it to get sober, you support it as a community, you would never do it, 
There's problems with it. There's problems with every community. But you understand why people need it. Like, they need to admit that they're powerless over alcohol. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're admitting, too, by saying you're alcoholic, right? Uh, the powerless thing, that's one of the things I always choked on. Because I, I don't, I kept coming back to that question of am I powerless? And the, but there were times where, like, one, you know, I'd go out one night and have one beer and go home. Or I'd quit for a period of time. And that was my, those were my evasions of like, well, if I can, if I can just have one drink and go home, then that proves I'm not, I'm not powerless because powerless is such an absolute thing. Right. You know, the, and so I guess right now that's what it feels like admitting by saying I'm alcoholic, that I'm powerless over it. Um, I don't know if I believe that. I also agree with you in the sense that, um, like you say in your book, like, yeah, I could probably have one tonight and go home and I could probably have one tomorrow and go home. But at some point I'm going to slide off the rails. Yeah. And honestly, like that's what it's always been for me. Like I've always, I will have a scary night and then I'll be good for a year or six months or whatever. And then the scary nights always catch up back up with me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And recently in the last year there's been more scary nights than good you know not even scary nights but just like not good nights yeah you know like there used to be i used to have so much fun drinking yeah and um while like there's still a lot that i i it's it's hard to like it's hard to detach like a lot of the good times from the drinking but like in my head but i mean that's where i'm at i don't know like i i realize like i really need to stop and that's what i'm working with right now i'm you know i've certainly been trying out the term alcoholic i told my mom i'm alcoholic um, but it's more to maybe hurt her feelings. Uh, <laughs> the spite, <laughs> spite confession. Yeah, but I'm the, trying it out. You know. So the let's try and reframe the conversation. The when I when I wrote the long run and when I sort of shared that story with um, my friends who I'd the you know I think you saw some of my my sort of spin out towards the end, but the. Um, but obviously you didn't see like the shit that I was hiding, you know? The, yeah. And I think for, I had no idea how bad it was. I knew you were not in a great spot, but I was also bummed that my drinking friend was gone. Yeah. Yeah. The, I definitely got that from a couple of people. The, but when, um, you know, and this is not to sort of steal anyone else's experience or compare my experience to somebody else's. However, when I uh, wrote The Long Run and shared it with my friends and people I'd worked with in the world at large the um, and admitted to being an alcoholic, the I had the sensation of coming out, of mm -hmm. um, finally having, um, you know, perhaps a little more insight into what it's like to live your life closeted. And then um, just tell people, this is who I am. Yeah. You know, this is who I've been this entire time. I've been hiding it. I've, I've felt, you know, incredible shame about it. But the um, 
now we're going to pray the AA away. No, the, <laughs> um, the, yeah, uh, alcoholism and, uh, and sexual orientation, two things, uh, unaffected by prayer. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, but, um, it, it was such a tremendous relief off me, you know, from me that, you know, it's sort of like I'd been trying to protest so hard to everybody that I wasn't an alcoholic, that I was still in control, that I could still keep it together. I could still make it to my job, the whatever. And the, and then when I was finally like, I can't, you know, the, I felt, a, you know, a tremendous amount of relief, the, and then to carry that, um, uh, you know, this, this sort of gender analogy that of seeing, uh, seeing your experience or seeing, understanding alcoholism and addiction, um, in terms of sort of like sexual orientation, yeah. the, um, we're hopefully we're evolving to a point as human beings where the, I don't give a shit anymore if somebody, uh, only fucks women or only fucks men or usually fucks women and fucks the occasional dude or the, um, they, uh, they are married to a woman, but they jerk off to, uh, you know, to trans porn or the, like, I don't give a shit about what people's sexuality, um, what their sexual lives are as yeah. long as, um, they're fulfilled, they're comfortable with themselves, they're, um, they're enjoying their life and the, um, and the rest of it's sort of like, uh, irrelevant to our friendship, you know, the, um, similarly, I think that we, um, we don't need to, it may not be necessary at this point in your recovery to define yourself as an alcoholic or not. And instead ask sort of a, a question on the spectrum of, does alcohol bring more good things into my life than bad things? Right. You know, and I think, um, you can say pretty definitively that, you know, it doesn't, that it's, yeah. it's mostly bad, but also the, I have a lot of friends who are, uh, pretty avowed lesbians now and they, you know, for a period of their lives, they were, um, you know, cis women married to cis men raising kids and having families and whatever the, and they're able to look back on their past and say, Oh yeah, no, that was, that was my life. And, uh, we're friends now. And, um, I have, you know, three beautiful children from that marriage and here's my partner, Janice, yeah. you know, that they're able to integrate the entirety of their experience and say, um, you know, uh, I'm grateful that I met David when I did and that, um, you know, we didn't, uh, you know, it, in hindsight, you know, maybe I, um, maybe I knew at the time that our, our relationship wasn't going to last forever, but I, I got good things out of it and I'm grateful to have traveled that path. Yeah. The, and it's not who I am now. The, that's what I'm hoping. Like I can look forward and say like, I used to be an alcoholic. Now I'm a lesbian. But I'm glad I traveled the path. Don't do that when I have a mouthful of <laughs> seltzer. The, there's a seltzer right there for you. Uh, if you're, uh, the, but like I'm at a point now that I'm, I'm almost 14 years sober. The, I'm at a point now where I'm not just um, grateful to be sober. I'm grateful to have been an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to like have done all the shit that we did and the... Uh, to have done all that crazy stuff, you know, the, um, and I think, 
you may have to sort of like be a little generous with yourself when you're reflecting on your drinking life. The I remember ten years ago you went out and did um whatever the Tough Mudder half yeah. marathon. Um, did you do one or you did two back to back or the? Mm. No, I did. Well, I did a Tough Mudder, but I also did a couple of the half marathons that that New York does. You know, like okay, the, you know, each borough has their own half marathon. I did like three of them, I think. Yes, I know it's in my book, Ryan. The <laughs> the but I feel the tough mutter, I feel I remember that we sat down and had a conversation and that you had done it with like no training. Yeah. The would you do that again today? No, but yes. I'm much older. Exactly. And that's perfect analogy for your drinking life. Yeah. The things that you know, peeing in ski boots, uh, in your uh the how old were you when you did that? I was like in my early Early mid thirties. Okay, so yeah, peeing in ski boots in your mid twenties, totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, right. People are gonna forgive you then. The and then as we get older, we have to retire some of that behavior, and some of that is is the you know it's just the like some of it is because alcohol is a poison; it destroys your body, you know, body, mind, and soul, and uh, we're all. But it, no matter what you want to do in your life, alcohol will always be an obstacle. And then part of it too is just it's just a function of age and youth and the shit that we did when we were younger that um, made sense, like running a fucking tough mutter on zero training. The well, yeah, I mean, I think that something you've said, and I think it's in your book too, but. Um you know, it's not that you, it's not that I want to drink anymore and do cocaine. It's that I want to be 25 again, you know, because that's what I did. Yeah. And like I was pining over an ex girlfriend from my 20s, and you said the same thing to me. And I think that is a good way of, as we get older, looking at things we're nostalgic about. You know, are we nostalgic about it because we really enjoyed it, or do we just want to be 25 again? And there is something very appealing about that, but also knowledge you know that you know why you're doing things you're doing is it is it just to reclaim your youth or is it you really want to still be doing it the we were taking a you know sort of a little trip down memory lane last night talking about uh beat the devil and fresh kills and some of the bands that I played in and the um the girls we dated and the mistakes that we made yeah and the and thinking about all of that, most of it, I was miserable during most of that time. And I would go back there in a fucking heartbeat. Yeah. And that's one of the, and, you know, maybe it's not just alcohol that's toxic as much as nostalgia. You know, that it's, um, it's so easy to, uh, you know, John Fanti has this great book called The Wine of Youth. And it's... Um, it speaks to both of those things, you know, that um, uh, it is intoxicating to be uh, 25 living in New York City and like starving. Yeah. And, you know, the um, I'm getting kicked out of this bar. Yeah. You know, it's very cinematic and the it's easy to recall that shit fondly. And um, but also I, you know, I remember a lot of stuff and it was fucking miserable. That's the thing, like. I mean, I, you said like you'd go back there in a heartbeat. Like I, for most of my life, I would not go back to it, but, um, 
since it was so hard. But there is that there's this period that I remember so fondly in that when I just like had just graduated college and was just starting to really do stand up with Ron Babcock and all my friends here in Phoenix who were starting off in like that same like 2003, 2004 time. And that I look back on that time with just so much like reverence because there was it was like an exciting new trick I was learning, which was stand up comedy. And it was working to the point where like I wasn't getting booed off stage, you know, like I was sometimes making people laugh. And there was all this hope for the future of like moving to L.A. and making it, you know, and like and so maybe I would go back to that point. However, now that I'm in Wilmington and doing the comedy scene there, it feels very much like my comedy scene starting in Phoenix because there's like people are there and they're a lot of the comics are kind of newer or younger or they've been doing it for a while and it's not like their livelihood. It's not their life. It's just something they enjoy doing. And that's kind of, so you can kind of reclaim those moments, you know, like in weird ways. Like there's something about being a medium sized fish in like a smaller pond, you know? I was talking to Babcock the other day and we were talking about, how worried we are about you and the, <laughs> um, how hard it is to, you know, to see a friend, you know, in trouble and how much we love you. And the, and we were also, you know, sort of talking about comedy now and where we are in our lives with performing and the, you know, that there were definitely points in my life where, you know, where I knew you and Ron, where I was counting on you know i gotta make at least 30 dollars at the next show so that i can yeah. fucking eat or i gotta right. sell a cd so i can eat and i'm i'm not there anymore and the um you know ron has a, a wife and a kid and a mm-hmm. job and the and he can and we are at a point in our lives where we can pursue uh you know comedy or music as uh, as a hobby, as something fun, yeah. you know? And I was telling Ron the, you know, it's, it's actually, it's kind of great that we're no longer as like grinding and serious about it. The, because we can sort of, uh, get back to what it was about originally, which is like having fun and the right. laughs. And Ron was like, Mishka, it was never about the laughs. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know? And I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. The, I mean, I think for such a long time, you know, that it was, um, it was about trying to prove something that like I can do this, you know, I'll, I'll show you fuckers. And then the, hopefully we're reaching sort of a, a point of grace in our, um, our evolution that, um, hopefully now at this point, it's about the laughs. Yeah. I feel like I'm enjoying stand up more than I ever did. Like the actual stand up, you know, I'm not trying to get anything out of it. I'm just, other than having like a great experience that night and hopefully building on it, you know? Um, whereas when I was doing it before, like every show was felt like life or death to me. Cause I thought that that was the sh- like I needed like so much approval to tell myself to keep going because like everything was telling me <laughs> when you start off, everything's telling you to stop. Yeah. Yeah. There's no like literally and figuratively like people are like, why would you go down this path? It's so hard to make it. 
And uh, also, like, when you start, you're not good, you know? Yeah. And so there's audiences. That's the thing about stand-up. You can't fool yourself. You can fool yourself a little bit, but, you know, it's not like you're just playing a song and people are nodding their head. Like, you, they have to actually be laughing. And if you're not getting the laughter, you know you're not doing well, but you have to lie to yourself and tell yourself that it's going well uh, to keep going. And, geez, like, yeah, just even thinking about it makes me not want to go back to those times. But now I, I feel like I am just really enjoying it for what it is. It's the... It is a, such a psychopathic venture, you know, the, and I think that's why like a lot of sort of, you know, first year open micers are telling people, you know, tell themselves like the uh, people aren't aren't laughing because I'm speaking the truth. You know, yeah. the, it's like, no, the, they're not laughing because you're not funny <laughs> the, right? or you're openly racist. The <laughs> um, uh, so right now you are uh, you're unemployed. Yep. You're separated. Yeah. You are living in Wilmington, North Carolina yeah. in a house that is not your house. Yeah. I mean, I don't really, <laughs> really have a house. I'm going, you know, I was staying in a friend's uh, guest house and it's rented for December. So I had to get out of there. I rented a different guest house. Uh, that's all. So I have December covered and that's it. And I'm. Yeah, I, um, oddly enough, like about two days after my wife and I decided that we're really going to finally try this full separation, I got laid off for just totally separate thing. It wasn't because I was drinking and undoing my job. It was just like the company wasn't making enough money. They had to lay off people. You know, it was kind of just like was unlucky enough to be in it, but gives me six months severance. So I'm going to just try to figure out my life, you know, and, uh. You forgot to say, I'm also lying to myself about being an alcoholic. So, oh, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> we'll feather that in. The, buy my book. The, um, so the so this podcast is going to go up, uh, whatever, December 14th, 15th, the roughly two weeks from now. The Where do you hope to be uh, two weeks from now? <laughs> Uh, hopefully able to hear it, the podcast where I can listen to it. Uh, <laughs> hopefully above ground. <laughs> above ground. Uh, you know what? That is a very good question, dude. I don't, I have been talking to my therapist a lot about this. I don't know what I want my next job to be. I don't know if I want it to be working in comedy still. I've been working in sports gambling content, uh, industry the last couple of years. I don't know if I still want to do that. Um, so yeah, man, I don't know. I hopefully in two weeks I just have more of an idea of where I wanna be. Um and that's the best I can hope for. But um, you know, I do wanna give a shout out in case he's listening to uh my buddy Matt Milner in Wilmington, who is a fan of yours. He oh, saw yeah. you uh speaking of like um what'd you call it, a micro celebrity, what'd you call yourself? Oh, yes. Uh I had like last time I was in town here in, in August, I'd posted a photo of us and he was very impressed. He's like, you know who Mishka is? I was like, yeah, we're old buddies. And he's like, wow. I guess he had seen you on like the Doug Stanhope Unbookable Store or something like that. Okay. And he's uh, he read your books. He's been a fan ever since. So if he's listening to this podcast, shout out to Matt Milner, very funny comic in Wilmington. Matt, if you're listening, uh, 
you're terrible and I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be so excited about that. The uh, there's your outgoing voice message. The I think everything you're saying makes sense. The when I first got sober, I had no idea. That was a question that terrified me. The, I had no idea like where I wanted to go or who I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. And the, I was sort of at a point in my life where I was like, well, the music didn't happen and the writing didn't happen. And the good news is that I'm sober and I discovered that I can run and I'm just going to like buy shit on Craigslist and then sell it on eBay. And that's going to be my life. And, and that's enough that's okay. You know, I yeah. was like so grateful to just to have come out the other end. I still can't believe you're in your young thirties and you're like, it's all just not worked. The, I, I, uh, you know, I gave up early and often the I'm, uh, that's what I'm <laughs> giving up. But that's is the thing. I'm, like uh, if I had asked you back then, like you were like a couple months sober, but you had your feet underneath you. And I'm like, well, what do you want to, if I had said, what do you want to do now? And you had said, yeah, I think these, um, Amazon singles are going to be a thing. I've been like, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that, Mishka. Like, you never know where the next thing is coming from. That's like the great thing about entertainment, I guess, or, or being a creative, you know? Like, you, you, you never know where that next job is coming from. You don't know what that weird opportunity is going to be. Because I would say that, like, Amazon singles didn't really work out for Amazon. Yeah. It worked out amazing for you. Yeah. So the fact that you were able to get something from that, you just, you got to be open to it. And uh, yeah, man, like the fact that it all worked out is like just such a fun story about how, you know, I never knew you as a writer. I didn't even know that he would gone to Columbia and got your MFA until like you started writing. I think a lot of people were really surprised when they found out that I could string a sentence together. The like I always knew you were a good writer. Your songs, I wasn't listening to your songs for your your sexy voice. I was listening <laughs> to it because they were so interesting. Like the lyrics, uh, I don't know why, but like the lyrics, like always stuck with me. Like the potato pills didn't turn to vodka like I had hoped <laughs> in the uh, sink. Something I'm I'm butchering it, but like the, you the- had like these great images so i knew you were a good writer but i had no idea you could write a story the worst thing about that line which is the now probably the, the most popular line i've ever written the potato peelings in the sink did not turn into vodka as i had hoped yeah is that that wasn't even something that i necessarily wrote that was just a thing that happened that i was reporting on <laughs> my, my old roommate sam Sachs like peeled potatoes and fucking let left the, the peelings in the sink and then like four days later the whole house stunk and i was just like well Guess they, you know, they didn't turn into vodka. Like j- even just having this tiny little dream, the even that's yeah. not going to come true. And I, I, you know, I, so I don't feel like I as, as much wrote it as I was just reporting on my pathetic alcoholic life. The yeah, but that's been pretty much all your writing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's worked. <laughs> I mean, you're I figured out my shtick early uh, on. Yeah, your 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 memoir writing is it's, it's part of your songwriting. It's part of your actual writing. One weird thing is that thinking back onto that, um, the time when I was like newly sober, you know, when I was a couple months in the, that's the only time that you've referenced in this podcast, you know, in my life that I, I'm not eager to go back to because, uh, early sobriety was so tough and so tricky and so much, um, uncertainty and the, um, 
I don't know. That's one of the reasons why the um, why I'm talking to Ron Babcock these days. That no, you know, no, why we're um, you know, why we're concerned about you is that you um, you are at a moment of great opportunity. Um, you have an opportunity here to totally reinvent yourself and reinvent your life and uh, move forward in a direction that's um, that's happier, healthier, more fulfilling. Or <laughs> you also have enough rope to hang yourself. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, so. But, like, I'm not, you know, I should be less optimistic. But I guess, like, I, I've i always, I would say that, like, Ron Babcock, and we talk about him way too much for people that don't know him, but he's a very optimistic, like, positive person in his everyday life so fucking gross and (laughs) um and like to the point where i used to get annoyed with him and but like looking back over my life i while i never thought i was an optimist or no one ever ever called me an optimist like the fact that i pursued this career path the fact that i thought you know what? Like I can, I'm not good enough now, but I think I can get good enough at writing and comedy where I can make a career of this, despite everybody telling me it won't work. Like I moved to LA thinking this will somehow work. I don't know how it'll somehow work. And then I moved to New York, thought the same thing. And then I moved back to, you know, and it's never worked like I thought it was going to, but it's worked. I'm here. I'm have money. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm still doing it. And so I kind of just feel like that with this, like, I feel like I don't know how it's going to work out yet, but it will, you know, I honestly feel that way too. The, there is, um, there's definitely like an air of finality to this. And the, a lot of the things that you've done, um, do reassure me that you are like fucking headed in the right direction. Um, where can people find you? Where can people find your stuff? Yeah, you can find me uh, uh on for my website. Uh, everything is linked there. You can uh, check out check me out on Instagram, That's where I've been posting most of my like stand up stuff. Uh, it's just at Ryan McKee. Didn't need the the. And that one <laughs> I got. I was an early enough adopter. Um, and then um, check out uh, my book. Mass Proposal Anthology on right. Amazon. Uh, it's a collection of uh, interviews I did with comedians and entertainers from like the mid aughts, like before comedy went viral. Like I was interviewing everybody from Dave Attell to Jim Gaffigan. And uh, during the pandemic, I put it all together in a book. It was like the zine that I had published with Ron Babcock. Uh, Mishka wrote stuff for it. And you're in the book. And yeah. Uh, yeah, check it out. Moss Proposal Anthology on Amazon. The It really is. It's a fucking killer document of all the shit that was bubbling below the surface before the huge like comedy explosion that yeah. we've seen recently. Uh, Ryan, thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I love you, buddy. Love you too, bud. Yeah. We just high-fived. I know. Awesome. Big, so they could hear... The people, listeners know that what that was. I like the, that the wasn't just footnote. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my dick slapping his ass. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, 
Thank you so much for listening. I know there's uh, a million podcasts out there. We appreciate you uh, you spending your time with us. The um, if you're digging the show, if you're enjoying it, if you if these conversations uh, move you, make you laugh, annoy you, piss you off, um, please take a minute to uh, to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, it helps us grow the show and it helps other people find it. Um, if you'd like to hear bonus episodes song demos just sort of uh, ranting off the cuff uh, conversations all sorts of different uh, bonus material writing advice uh, personal blog posts and stuff like that uh, go to patreon.com slash mishka shabali uh, we will be having monthly episodes up there with my mom and i answering uh, questions from readers and there's all kinds of good stuff there uh, thank you so much for supporting. 